This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books Network. I'm Atre Majumdar, your New Books Network host. And my guest today is Francis Cody, which I'm ve- and I'm very excited to share with you his new book, a 2023 publication, The News Event, Popular Sovereignty in the Age of Deep Mediatization, published by U Chicago Press, in, right off, fresh off the press very recently. And uh, hello and welcome, Frank. Oh, thank you very much, Atre. I really appreciate this opportunity to share my work. Okay, let's get on with it. Uh, my first question to you, could you tell us, for, for our audience, Frank, could you tell us a little bit more about the phenomenon of the news event that is at the center of your new book? And perhaps a little bit about the context of Tamil Nadu politics in southern India, out of which this study emerges. So the concept of the news event that I develop in this book really emerges from my materials. Um, And it refers to that moment where it becomes difficult to distinguish between uh, the event of uh, representing something in the news and the events being represented in the news. Um, So, for example, I begin the book with the arrest of a very prominent political leader in, in Tamil Nadu, Um, This arrest took place in 2001, Um, and uh, his rival had just been elected into office, and he's an elderly gentleman who was woken up at 1 o'clock in the morning by the the police in Chennai uh, to be arrested on corruption charges. Um, But in anticipation of the arrest, it appears that a television crew was already at his house, and so the arrest was uh, televised. Um, and shown to viewers the following morning on a constant loop, making people very angry that this uh, uh, political leader, who's much beloved by people in Tamil Nadu, was arrested in his home uh, in the middle of the night. It seemed terribly unjust. Um, But what happened as people started to uh, reckon with the political significance of the event is that it became very difficult to distinguish uh, the event of the arrest and the legal ramifications of it from the fact that it was in fact televised. And uh, the the televisual force of uh, the news coverage became an integral part of the story of what had happened to this political leader. So that's an example of sort of a classic news event where it becomes difficult to distinguish the event of representation in the news, um, that is the broadcast of the arrest, from the event of the arrest itself. Um, So the news event is, uh, in some respects, a phenomenological category, speaking to our experience of the news, 
which has an objective basis, nonetheless, in the fact that so much of what we experience as news is, in fact, reporting on the media as such. Um, and so this experiential fact, uh, in turn, can lead to the proliferation of feedback loops where news producers aim to become the topic of further news through acts like defamation or problematic engagements with um, outlaws and things that are likely to draw the public eye toward a particular journalist or news organization. So that's a kind of a brief sketch of this idea of the news event that's at the center of the book. Right. Now, Thanks. Tamil Nadu... And, yeah. and go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Mm. Go ahead, go ahead. Huh. So Tamil Nadu is a very uh, interesting place to look at this um, dynamic because political parties in uh, this region of southern India have been very invested in media as a means to pursue politics. Um, and so leaders of uh, the Dravidian movement, uh, which includes Karanandi, who was arrested at midnight, um, really uh, made their name in politics through newspapers, uh, films, theater, and public speeches um, in, in a context where other parties were less invested in, in, in uh, uh, mass mediation as a means to pursue politics. This is partly as a result of uh, Gandhi's insistence on, uh, on, on a different form of politics. Um, so for the, the DMK, for example, owned Sun TV, uh, which had recorded the, uh, the midnight arrest of Karanandi, um, and this was one of, of the most important uh, news channels to enter the world of liberalized media in India in the 1990s. Uh, in this state, in Tamil Nadu, every party, if they wanted to become a political party after this, had to start their own news channel. And so the beginning of news television in Tamil Nadu is in fact tied to political parties. And so there's an acute reflexivity among uh, uh, political leaders and newsmakers uh, about the degree to which uh, and the ways in which political sovereignty is mediated by the news and by the technological environment. So I think it's, it's a rather special state that then I think becomes a model for um, politics elsewhere in, in India. Right. And, and as, as you um, very um, effectively pointed out, right, the news becomes news, um, which is what leads me to my next question. You write in the book um, to, on page 21, to be precise, and I would furthermore argue that we must all be doing some kind of media anthropology now, whether or not media are thematized on an object of inquiry. We should therefore take into consideration lessons from media studies and how an increasingly integrated media environment is the condition in which participant observation of media circulation or any other public event for that matter takes place. You're saying something about the, the ubiquitousness of, of um, the media in any ethnographic environment. Uh, could you elaborate on this statement, please? Yes, I mean, this argument stems from uh, a simple observation, and I think it became obvious to many uh, during uh, COVID lockdowns that so much of the textual material we engage with as anthropologists, as ethnographers, whether we're talking about images or language, comes to us through networked media. Um, this became very obvious when we had access to little else in the world. Um, but certainly, I think for many of us, it raised the question of um, 
the priority we tend to give to having been in a particular place, um, the, 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 the importance of firsthand experience of events and participating in events as uh, ethnographers, as a mode of producing knowledge, um, has certainly been complicated by our reliance on network media. Um, at the same time, anthropological writing about media has receded somewhat, I would say, in, in recent years. Um, so the anthropology of media uh, sort of established itself as a field relatively and surprisingly late um, in the early 2000s, uh, I would say well represented in the Media Worlds volume uh, published in 2002. And most of the contributors to that volume went on to write important monographs. Um, and in the early 2000s, we had a spate of monographs about virtual worlds, uh, hackers, uh, free software communities. More recently, we have an anthropology of algorithms. But I would say since this time, media technologies as such have become uh, more of a sort of background to much of what anthropologists studies as, as opposed to being foregrounded as objects of studies. And so this is the observation. And all this despite maybe because of the fact that we ethnographers are more reliant on electronic media in our work than we were than when I was doing my dissertation research, for example, in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we end up consuming some part of the geopolitics of the region where we work, even before we go there, or if even before we've had a chance to immerse ourselves there, there's, there's a certain kind of media consumption of the field, um, which, which precedes, I guess, in ethnography. Um, you use the word event uh, very crucially in the book. The, there's a there's an unpacking of the word event, and uh, in the beginning, um, you you've used Vinadas's formulation, critical events, as a kind of starting point in your theoretical analysis. Um, what kinds of temporalities, if I may put it that way, uh, do news events occupy? Let me say in two ways. Uh, within the stretch of an event temporality and event time and within the linearity of, say, historical time, if that does that bifurcation even makes sense. Uh, and I'm, and if you could please talk a little bit more about your conception of short circuits in the book. Yes. So, I mean, I found Vina Das's methodological intervention in critical events to be very inspiring because of how it allowed anthropology to inhabit scales of analysis previously neglected in thinking about the relationship between state and community in her case. Um, so our ways of thinking about gender and kinship, uh, which were really more indebted to, to structural approaches to, to society, for example, were used to understand events of state violence. Um, now the events Das writes about in that book were all of great significance to the life of a nation, um, and so inhabited both a, an event time and a historical time that could be considered as a sort of uh, rupture that would trouble narratives uh, that people held dear, forcing new ethical and political reflection. Those were events in the more classical sense of the term that you might encounter in social theory or, or philosophy. Now, I think more recently, anthropology has been interested in different levels of public eventhood and in thinking about how small events might become big through mediatization or how national disasters might fold themselves into people's more intimate spheres of life. Uh, and of course, this is some of the work that uh, Das has pursued since that book. Now, many of the, the events that come under the category of the news event, which is the focus of my book, uh, 
are not considered to represent such a substantial rupture as those discussed in, in the, sort of the classical event, although some are. Um, and there's a great debate about the status of some of the events that I write about. Some people would play them down, and some people would say, well, everything changed after that. Um, some appear to be of great significance at the time, while in retrospect, it's not clear that they're, what their lasting importance is. Um, and say that they very much do trouble people's sense of historicity and politics, um, especially uh, uh, among left thinkers who, you know, for very good reasons, value the sense of historical rupture that we associate with modern uh, revolutionary movements and so forth. So this is part of what's at stake in debates about short-circuiting that I hone in on in a chapter on uh, new media and public protests. Now, this trope of short-circuiting is one that I detected in the literature. I didn't come up with it. Um, and it's often used to describe um, the, the, the um, sort of bypassing of normal traditional modes of political uh, representation uh, that characterize many uh, social movements that arose in recent years in connection with social media. And it's generally used in the pejorative sense of disabling a full-fledged politics to emerged, uh, used to refer to what appear to be um, uh, short-term events that will have no lasting political significance, for example. Um, but I found it to be a very useful trope to think with um, for reasons not entirely captured in the literature, because um, it also, you know, the trope of short-circuiting, short circuits also release tremendous amounts of power and social energy um, uh, uh, when uh, mass social protest happens, even if it doesn't last for long. Um, and so, for example, I mean, I write about uh, a mass protest that attracted hundreds of thousands of people to the beach in, um, in Chennai, the capital city of Tamil Nadu. Um, that many people on the traditional left thought um, was not going to lead to any great change. But for those who participated in it, it was uh, the event of a lifetime and it defined a generation. Um, and so I found the trope of short-circuiting a very interesting way to think about the temporality of politics in relationship to publicity, uh, which is an old theme, um, but we're just trying to get a, a handle on what, um, what politics are enabled when um, the, 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 the velocity of circulation enabled by something like WhatsApp, um, uh, which is central to political mobilization in India right now, um, leads to events that are difficult to anticipate um, and also, um, while tremendously powerful, also dissipate with great speed. Um, and so that's the kind of uh, eventhood that I'm, I'm interested in, in in that chapter in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very interested in the, your use of the term velocity and and publicity that is that is um, riding on this kind of uh, velocity of circulation. Could you say a little bit more about uh, what speed, what kinds of um, publicity or, or publicness is enabled by this kind of uh, attribute of of speed? Um, so, in the literature on the public sphere, um, there's an argument. Um, that the the kind of politics um, that emerge from uh, the circulation of texts has everything to do with um, the speed and spread of their circulation. Um, and you know, public sphere theory, of course, was built out of a study of uh, print culture 
um, and trying to understand what kinds, what genres of print would lead people to take action on the street, for example, and how that fit in relationship to things like rumor and the oral circulation of um, of information that had a different uh, uh, scale and, and scope, both spatially and um, temporally, uh, that led to a different type of politics. Um, now, a lot of the traditional distinctions between, for example, print and rumor have uh, fallen apart in the age of, uh, of digital media. Um, and many people are lamenting this, actually, because um, uh, for many people, the kinds of politics that emerge from social media circulation don't have the kind of depth uh, the kind of social thickness that they uh, associated with what politics is supposed to be. Um, and so there's this idea that the, the uh, you know, people who gather instantly for one cause and then move on to the next are, are not properly political. Um, and those are the debates I was interested in entering into uh, when thinking about short-circuiting. Uh, because in some senses they do resemble some of the older debates about whether uh, you know crowd politics enabled by rumor, for example, are properly political as opposed to uh, the more classical public sphere of, of print culture and so forth. Um, so it raises a lot of interesting questions that I, I don't have easy answers for. Um, but I do tend to resist the assumption um, that these mass crowd actions are not properly political because it has a very kind of normative understanding of what politics is um, that I think we need to, to, to question in this age. Right. On the question of the public spheres about which, um, and, and you unpack that in some detail, um, we have this kind of older genre of critique from Nancy Fraser, etc., of the bourgeois public sphere, but uh, but that's not what what your uh, book seems to be most interested in. You're drawing from Michael Warner and media theorists like Tiziana Terranova to uh, generate some sort of a fissure in the conception of the public, and as you said, uh, this kind of uh, through through this kind of understanding of pressure points that come from crowds and mobs. And, and stuff like that. Uh, could you speak a little bit about, about your unpacking of public sphere theory and where you stand in that scholarship? Sure. So one of the overarching narratives in public sphere theory, um, and I think this is inherited uh, from Habermas and Frankfurt School um, thinking and others, um, and often underpinning very sophisticated critiques of the public sphere, um, is one where uh, there was once a sphere of mass-mediated politics that was relatively independent of market forces that has now been subsumed and fully commodified. Um, and so I would include even you know, the most important critics of the liberal public sphere. Uh, this, uh, this narrative tends to um, somehow make its way into their theorization. Um, and I think what gets smuggled into this narrative is an assumption that liberal ideals, however problematic they are for critical theory, um, were at one point hegemonic and then replaced by something else. Um, for Warner, this is the emergence of identity politics or a corollary underground world of counter-public. Uh, counter uh, for Terra Nova, this is uh, a world of information warfare that uh, comes to envelop older temporalities of public debate. Um, and this is the narrative that I'm interested in interrogating from, and I think this is where the location of my study really does matter, um, from a, a perspective uh, um, that comes 
more out of post-colonial theory that um, questions the hegemony of liberalism itself in a, in a, in a place like uh, southern India. Um, and in that sense, I found the figure of the crowd or the mob uh, from which the public is often distinguished to be a very interesting entry point into these debates. Um, because crowd actions in Tamil Nadu uh, often thrown to question the assumptions built into much of public sphere theory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in that context, uh, where the crowds uh, lead to various kinds of, you know, you've spoken a little bit about the application of Section One Forty Four situations in in various places in India, uh, and the law becomes an important arbiter of these situations which are threatening to get out of control. And uh, you write uh, in two chapters um, uh, about one about defamation and the other the presence of law at large um, about the law and and, and the media, uh, some sort of cross-fertilizing each other, existing for each other's um, need and interest. And you also use um, the examples of various kinds of sensational litigations to which generate then news events of their own. Um, can you talk a little bit about the concurrence of media and litigation or, or the threat of litigation through which the news event is produced and or transacted? So the threat of litigation appears in this book as a fairly important uh, and even constitutive ingredient in the production of news events. Um, one of the important means by which journalists or news organizations become subjects of further news is through legal actions taken against them for something provocative they've published. Um, So as you mentioned, there's a chapter in the book devoted to criminal defamation law and how it's been used to control the image of important political leaders while at the very same time inviting journalists to make a name for themselves by confronting leadership and producing uh, uh, kind of spectacular events out of attempts at censorship. Some journalists, and one in particular that I profile in some uh, detail, uh, Nakir and Gopal, have made a career out of attracting and fighting defamation cases. Um, and some of these cases reached the Supreme Court of India and now stand as um, important precedents referred to by uh, appellate courts across the country um, uh, protecting uh, free speech, for example. Um, now, defamation is only one law. There's also sedition, various laws about disturbing the peace, etc., to silence the media that can be turned into the opposite of silence. Um, and there's a similar dynamic at work in contempt of court, where scandalizing a judge can lead to a great deal of renown for the person doing the scandalizing and greater scrutiny of the judge in question. So that's one end of it. Um, and these are examples of the sorts of feedback loops I mentioned earlier. Uh, but the other end of it is that um, both political leaders and judges, in fact, rely a great deal on the forms of publicity provided by news coverage for their own sense of uh, greatness and fame and so forth. And so they're vulnerable in that respect insofar as they're very dependent upon uh, the, the, uh, the very media who uh, can use attempts at censorship to produce uh, further news and therefore um, damage the reputation of political leaders and, and, and judges. Um, and so it's kind of a, a dangerous game. And you know, various scholars have thought of it uh, as a sort of wager on publicity uh, that both uh, news uh, publishers and political leaders or, um, or judges 
uh, are engaged in a, a kind of uh, a, a gamble on what it means to be so dependent on news coverage for your sense of self. Uh, you've you've used uh, the scholarship of you know senior advocates like Rajiv Thavan and various other legal scholars on on this kind of free speech versus censorship sedition, the threat of law taking away um, the the kind of texture of free speech that is important in a democracy a fair bit in the book. Um, can you speak a little bit? I'm just curious uh, if you could speak a little bit about um, delving into the law as a particular kind of archive, being an anthropologist of media. Um, wh- what was that like? How did you negotiate it, etc.? Um, it's very daunting. Um, I, I had a, a great deal of help from, from colleagues who are well-versed in, um, in legal studies. Um, and it, 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 for me, as an anthropologist, my interest in the law really did uh, come out of my uh, conversations with journalists for whom this was a major concern, the constant threat of uh, especially criminal defamation cases at that point in time. Um, and so I learned both from journalists themselves who become expert in the law um, uh, and legal journalists in particular, those who were covering the high court in uh, the Madras High Court at the time I was doing research, taught me a great deal about the law. Um, because they become experts uh, on the job, as it were, um, but also from my colleagues in uh, so socio and cultural legal studies, uh, um, uh, especially in South Asia, uh, who helped point me in the right direction in terms of how to understand the the, the you know the very layered quality of uh, laws restricting free speech in. Uh, in India in particular, uh, and even the nuances of the Indian constitution, which um, has a provision, of course, uh, 19 for uh, free speech, very much modeled on uh, kind of liberal uh, democratic ideals that's immediately curtailed um, in, in, the following, <laughs> in the following section that says, except for in cases of you know, public disorder, and there's a long list that includes defamation. Um, and so that very kind of ambivalent relationship to free speech that's part of the Indian legal tradition is something that um, I had to study in, in some depth, and that was very new territory for me. Um, and so while I do not make, make a claim to be making a contribution to legal studies per se, I do think bringing the law into media studies has helped uh, kind of enliven Absolutely. Uh, my analysis. Right. Do you find that the law itself undergoes um, some sort of mediatization insofar as these days um, Supreme Court hearings are live streamed uh, or are at any rate live reported by outfits like the live law on Twitter. Um, There are Twitter feeds that you can see where uh, a a hearing or or an argument is uh, live reported and in some cases uh, it's they're even live streamed um, what kind of mediatization if at all does that lead to um, so I mean we have to begin with the assumption that law was mediatized already prior to the kind of liveness of that mediatization right um, in the book I, uh, I, I refer to um, one of the more prominent retired uh, high court judges who served both in Delhi and in the Madras High Court AP Shah who I met once at a cocktail party, and you know, he's, he he said uh, uh, when I told him about my research, he quipped, you know, most high court judges I know cannot even have their morning coffee without first reading about themselves in the papers. Um, that's that, that's how conscious they are of their self image, and that they really care about how they're being reported on. Um, and so, uh, newspaper coverage is one thing; live reporting is a different thing. Um, 
Now, what I was able to do in, in my research is, is see clearly um, in the case where judgments that uh, come out of the courts actually refer to media representations of judges or the law. And that's something I looked at in some detail um, that I deal with in the book. But there's so much work to do to better understand how legal professionals and judges see this phenomenon. Okay, so the shift from newspapers to real-time mediation would presumably introduce a new dynamic. Um, where judges might well be much more self-conscious about how they speak and about their comportment in ways that um, they were protected from when cameras were not allowed into the courtroom and so forth. Um, but this is, I mean, I think this is a super interesting area of uh, research that uh, is, is, I think, open for, for scholars to pursue. Um, and it's also, as you note, a rapidly changing one because this is a, uh, the live streaming of uh, Supreme Court hearings, of course, is, is a relatively new phenomenon. Right, right. Um, and, and also um, the, the proliferation of news-related social media, how does, how do, does that complicate or, or unsettle um, your understanding of what is news in any way. I'm thinking particularly uh, about the fact that news articles or portals um, routinely rely on what important people like Modi or like Elon Musk or Trump or anyone else seems to have said on social media to prepare the content that actually gets published as news. Like Rahul Gandhi said this and that tweet becomes the news or Modi's tweet becomes the news. Uh, does that unsettle anything about your understanding of news at all? Yes and no. I mean, at the broadest level, the book is about this crisis facing news, this crisis where it becomes difficult to establish an epistemic or ethical position exterior to the world being represented by the news uh, when media is reporting on other media. And so Public figures are, of course, very conscious of the fact that their own mediatized reporting of events become events themselves. So as you know, a tweet, for example, becomes the subject of an article in a newspaper. Um, now, it beca- I think it disturbs what, uh, what we think of as news and, and even my model of the news when that becomes all that is the news. And I think, unfortunately, journalists in India and elsewhere have done very little to fight the very dynamic that undermines their authority as news gatherers. Um, And they often, of course, play into the hands of those who seek to set the agenda by producing um, news events. What I argue in the book, however, is that this blurring of the line between events of representation and the representations of events has an older history that we should be aware of, right? So public figures using Twitter um, and the older and, and the social media more generally have exploited this potentiality that was already there. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course, uh, but the media that they choose to do so with uh, does matter a great deal. Um, and so the very character of, of Twitter and its restricted uh, number of characters and so forth, uh, you know, helps to kind of um, uh, shape the contour of what counts as public discourse, uh, as we've all seen in, in the past few years. Um, so that's that's the kind of yes and no answer to that question. Uh, many of the potentialities that, are, that were already there in uh, the news event have now been fully exploited uh, by people who become, you know, virtuosos in producing news events themselves. <laughs> right, right. I remember when you spoke uh, at the NLS uh, recently, uh, and as the book had just come out, you had said um, something about the combination of, of, of media studies methods and 
and in some respect cultural studies methods along with ethnographic methods in your choice of uh, methodological choices that you make in a book uh, can you talk a little bit about methodology uh, and how you went about it etc yeah so i mean it became clear that um as i began this project um there was already a, a, a really interesting literature coming out um, of kind of institutional studies of uh, newsrooms and so forth, of a, a range of very interesting anthropological studies of, uh, of, of journalism and um, people going out into the field and, and doing reporting and so forth in India and elsewhere. Um, and I realized that I wanted to do something a little different, and I honed in on the question of the news event. Now, that decision of, uh, of uh, object uh, entailed a rather different methodology to understand what it was than um, the more traditional ethnography of hanging out with journalists when they do their job. Uh, um, because the event is something that happens not only in the newsroom or even when the journalist is going out to an event and, and taking notes and so forth. But it's something that happens across different times and space that require uh, a methodological approach that is more akin to cultural studies in terms of what you use as your materials. Um, and so in that sense, this is a, a cultural studies uh, kind of book. In the other sense, it's a very anthropological book um, insofar as I do think the, the most important thing that the discipline of anthropology has to offer uh, through the practice of ethnography, and as I noted earlier, ethnography now includes not just being there in a physical sense, but being there in, in all sorts of other ways of engaging with people uh, through uh, network media, is that the questions that I'm asking do arise from my engagement with interlocutors, right? I only came to this question of the news event through seeing people, you know, acting it out. Uh, defamation became a problem that I had to understand because it was a problem facing the people I was talking to. And so in that sense, it's a very uh, traditional anthropology book insofar as I do think that um, uh, this type of work um, makes the most impact when the concepts that come to define the study arise from the, the field, however you want to conceive the field uh, in this age. Sure. Um, and, and considering that you of, uh, considering the fact that you have trained as a linguistic anthropologist and your earlier work was deeply rooted in writing practices in, in the Tamil world, um, I want to ask, um, as we close this conversation, um, that you, you talk about the English language press and the Tamil press uh, simultaneously. And uh, does that lead to some difficulty or not? And um, how is the, is the, is there any merit in bifurcating or, or dividing the two as, as, you know, you're talking about Enram and the Hindu, and you're talking about the various uh, presses that are, the presses and media houses that are run in Tamil. Um, and, and they're simultaneously Cross, not only cross-fertilizing each other, but also producing a complex news event. Can you talk about uh, this kind of linguistic divide that exists in India and more centrally in Tamil Nadu uh, in your work? Yes. Um, so um, 
One of the uh, important uh, studies of, of news media that um, I was engaging with um, when conceiving of this project and, and, and carrying it out uh, was Arvind Radgopal's work on um, politics after television, where he um, made uh, uh, an important distinction uh, between uh, Hindi media and English media as they were reporting um, the rise of Hindutva politics. Um, and he uh, came up with what he calls a, 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 an heuristic uh, of this idea of a split public, that these uh, languages were actually um, addressing very different kinds of people with very different, um, a, a different ethos, a different mode of, of narration, a different sense of uh, objectivity or the, the presentation of being somehow distant from the story being represented versus being close to it affectively. Um, and that has produced a tremendous amount of interesting research, this idea of a split public in in, in, in particular, but elsewhere as well. Um, and so I found that idea very useful, but at the same time, the deeper I got into some of the materials, the more I realized how um, publications or television channels um, that might appear to be incredibly different from each other in how they report the news um, are often actually um, in conversation with each other in some very interesting ways, and in part by because of how people are reacting to their reporting. And so that became most clear to me in um, my work on defamation when I realized that um, uh, it was actually in, in part the, 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 the state's attack on media that drew uh, media organizations that would otherwise appear to be very distant from each other, very close to each other in fighting censorship. Um, and um, it is a world where people go between different languages uh, with relative ease for the most part. Um, and so, for example, most serious Tamil language journalists will read the Hindu newspaper every day, which is an uh, English language paper. And uh, the Hindu, by virtue of being in Chennai, is, um, is in conversation with the kind of media environment around it, even if it's not always evident when you read the newspaper, when you talk to the people who work there, it's very clear. Um, and so I found that there were some limits to this idea of a split public, that they were very actually interpenetrated with each other um, when thinking about the production of news events in particular, um, and would often kind of report on what each other were doing. Um, and so the Tamil language media is, is often very concerned with how things are being reported in the English language media and vice versa. La and lastly, uh, the, the news event seems like um, something that uh, enmeshes the economy of images with the economy of text. And in some senses, the two become each other or, or something like that. And um, can you speak um, as we close this conversation about uh, the proliferation of images through which uh, news circulates, the news event is produced, and and is there even does it even make sense to make that distinction between uh, image and text and 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 their and their interrelationship? Yes, I mean as you note, I come from the tradition of of a kind of a linguistic anthropology approach to uh, text and textual circulation, and that entry point into uh, public sphere theory, which we talked about a bit earlier. Um, and as has been noted by scholars from visual studies, that the whole uh, sort of apparatus of uh, public sphere theory, thinking about publics and anthropology, including some of my own earlier work, has been in some senses biased towards uh, uh, linguistic texts. 
uh, at the expense of understanding the role of uh, visual images or even material you know, signs out there in the world um, that might have a, a politics that are specific to that, um, that, that medium. Um, that said, I think one of the interesting f- responses from the, the tradition of semiotic anthropology is to then approach images using some of the conceptual tools that have been developed in the study of language. Um, and so, um, especially when we think about the world of, of social media, um, where images and text are so uh, laminated uh, one onto the other, um, that I, I do think it makes sense to think of them together um, uh, through an, a, a processual language that um, you know thinks about them as as process, not not ever like co- sort of completed facts. And I think that's one of the lessons that uh, linguistic anthropology has really. Uh, taught me and a whole generation of scholars is to think about uh, not languages uh, or discourse as an established fact, but as, 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 as an unfolding semiotic process. And I think visual studies scholars um, uh, are also using some of those tools. I mean, Karen Strassler's book on, um, on images in Indonesia also focuses on the question of the event and how images become the basis upon which um, you know, events work themselves out. Um, and so images that you know make a, a big difference in, in national politics there, um, uh, but is using some of the tools that I think are sort of more broadly shared with anthropology, um, and so in that sense I think there's a rapprochement that's happened uh, between these different ways of approaching uh, publics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, do you want to say uh, before we close a little bit? about uh, future directions in which your your work is likely to take um is there is there new research you are doing in the sphere of anthropology of media or something else yes so i mean uh, this book as often is the case raised more questions for me than it answered um and one specifically had to do with um how uh the question of caste is being represented in the news and historically has been represented and the role of news coverage in public understandings of what caste is. Um, and so that's something I've been focusing on in, in more recent um, research um, and specifically representations of caste violence. Um, and in that sense, the news event uh, plays a very different role than it does in the narrative that I'm, I've drawn out in the book, because this is often caste violence is often something people don't want to represent in the news um, because of the casteist uh, orientations of, of news organizations. And so then the question for, for activists who I'm also working with, people who are interested in documenting and publicizing caste violence, is how do you then engage with um, a, a sphere of journalism that's propelled by the logic of the news event? And so that's that's something I'm just beginning now. Excellent. Thank you, Frank, for this conversation. Thank you for uh, coming and, and spending your time with NBN today. Uh, we're very happy to, um, to close this conversation with the note that it's probably one of the most exciting works on the Indian media that has come out in the recent years. Uh, thanks again. Stay tuned for our future episodes and uh, do not forget to pick up the book. It's published by U Chicago Press 2023, the news event. Uh, popular sovereignty in the age of deep mediatization. Thank you and good night. I'll be. Uh, thank you very much, Atre, for your generous questions. Uh, I got. It.